This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping can take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs. Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam, and we're joined as always by my little older brother and real-life economist, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Yeah, good, Adam. How are you going? Um, doing pretty good, thanks. We are officially now out of isolation after my wife Anna got COVID. So oh, good one. it's nice to be back in the real world. So sick of washing my hands. We have had some have had some feedback coming through on the show. We, we do very much appreciate it. You can send us an email, cve at equitymates.com, on the website, equitymates.com forward slash cve, or do what Kieran did and send us a message on Instagram at cve podcast. Kieran says, hey, guys, just wanted to share a theory on Andrew Forrest's reasoning behind purchasing RM Williams. I believe it's because of the amount of cows that are run over by FMG trains and instead of just paying farmers to handle it, he can now ship them off and make new boots and a small profit. So we, we couldn't work out last week why where RM Williams fits into the Fortescue Metals Group stable uh, with all the, all the uh, energy plays and uh, clean energy plays. So there you go, Thomas. Do you think that's it? Oh, undoubtedly. I think he's, he's nailed it. <laughs> as long as he hits him going down the hill, that's all. That's all I'm going to say. Because <laughs> if he's he's using more energy to power, to to plow through cows going up the hill, then that's gonna that's gonna cost him. Uh, anyway, or as always, massive show coming up today. Uh, lots to get through. We're going to find out what a yield curve is. Is it really just what happens when you leave your Pearl Jam CDs in a hot car? Not sure. Little, little joke for the 90s kids there. Um, it's the end of globalisation. If you don't know what globalisation is, don't worry. There is no value in knowing now because it's all about to finish. Uh, and we're going to take a trip to the beautiful Solomon Islands where we can lay on the sand, stare out over the crystal clear waters and drink in the majesty of the Chinese warships who are just parked there for a bit. Nothing sus. Look, we're moving them. Uh, but first, we promised you a budget wrap and boy, Boy, did we deliver something like it. Uh, in case you missed it, we did team up with Charles from the Chaser Report for a, a crossover episode. Uh, that dropped last Friday. Uh, lots of budget talk in there, almost too much budget talks, fair to say. Uh, so if you haven't heard that already, go back and treat your ears to something special. Uh, it was a lot of fun actually working working with Charles. So uh, hopefully we'll get to do that again, do that again soon. Um, but, yeah, make sure you go and check that out if you haven't already. But, Thomas, now that the dust has settled on the budget, is there any – you got any final thoughts, any other key takeaways you want to bring up? Yeah, final thought, if I could just wheel my high horse in here for a second. 
Um, as long as it's not a cow, it'll get yeah. run over by a train. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think ultimately I've, I've been feeling pretty depressed about the fact that there's just nothing in the for the environment or the planet in the budget. It feels like a missed opportunity. Pretty disappointing overall. So we got... Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the environment deserves anything. It's been performing pretty poorly lately. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been underperforming up here. Well, no, we we had yeah, we had two floods in a month. That's mm. you know that's a record. So you know, yeah. smashing records up here. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's hard it's hard for me personally. Like we, I've got friends who are sleeping in their cars or sleeping on lilos in people's front rooms. Like, and they're just good people. It's just it's just brutal what's happened up here. And at the same mm. time as that's going on. There's 1.3 billion for new gas projects. Darwin got a rate actually, so there's a 300 million to develop an LNG uh, terminal in Darwin. So right. They got, yeah. So a lot of money for gas, but that's at the time the International Energy Agency saying if we want a 50-50 chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, we need no new fossil fuel projects. Government mm. didn't get the memo on that one. The Australian energy market operator came out last week as well and said that the role of natural gas in the energy mix isn't that certain um, because we're just transitioning to electricity so rapidly. Households are moving to electric heating away from gas heating because solar is so com- cost competitive. So it's not clear that there is a future for gas. Uh, government also missed the memo on that one. Well, they're creating a future for gas. They are. They're yeah. making sure, they're making making sure, sure there's a future for gas. Yeah, just not humans. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, so 1.3 billion for gas and fossil fuel projects and nothing for electric, electric vehicles. So, mm. yeah, so we've got two, less than 2% of car sales in Australia are electric. Um, that's less than the global average of 8.6%. So we're way behind the mm. curve on that one. I did see that chart though. There, there was a chart, it was in the, the AFR, I think, mm. um, and it had, uh, it had the top 10 uh, mm. I had top 10 com- countries. Norway was on 72% leading the way. Uh, Australia was last with, as you say, under 2%. Mm. But it's top 10, baby. That's so well, no, it's it's only, good news, right? No, it's only top 10 because they're only presenting 10 countries in, <laughs> on the chart. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if we're top 10. Hey, top 10. Uh, I'm, I mean, the reason I, I did have my doubts about the chart because top 10 countries by their percentage of sales of new new vehicles being electric. Uh, Europe was sitting fifth and last time I checked, Europe, not a country. So, (laughs) yeah, I think it's hard to find. What I did find, it's hard to find data about electric vehicle take-up that's not either published by a clean energy body or by like a petrol lobby. Like you just get these polarising kind Uh. of... Um, like, yeah, green cars are the future, mm. electric cars are the future, or like, you know, nah, they're never going to take off. It's a fad. Yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's a shame that the future of the planet's been politicised like that. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yeah, so while there's nothing for electronic vehicles, there's $1.3 billion for gas projects. Climate action policies have been defunded to 35, by 35% over the next four years. Mm. And then nothing for resiliency and disaster preparedness. So it kind of feels like for, for us up here, having just been through a massive crisis, which to us just seems clearly linked to climate change, 
it kind of feels like gaslighting, I think. So mm. that's, that's the vibe up here. That's why we need gas. <laughs> the gaslighting. <laughs> Thomas, I keep hearing the phrase yield curve being mentioned in the news in the last week. Mm. What's going on with the yield curve? What is the yield curve? Yeah, well, yeah, the, the reason you're hearing about it is that the yield curve inverted. Um, wow, mm. Tony Hawk style. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, and that's typically see- I mean, this is in America we're talking about. So the yield curve inverted, and that's typically seen as a very strong indicator the, of a imminent recession, or that there's right. a recession down the road. Yeah, in the last sixty five years, there've only been two false flags. So only two times where the yield curve has inverted and it hasn't been followed by a recession. Right. Well, before we get to recession, mm. what is the yield curve? So the yield curve, it just looks at sort of uh, bond yields, so government bond mm-hmm. yields, um, and basically so the amount of, of return that a bond yield is giving you at different time horizons. A bond is, so I'm just going mm. to have to step me through this. A mm-hmm. bond is lending money to the government, right? So if you buy a mm. bond, you're, yeah. you're kind of lending money to the government. Yeah, that's right. That's in simple right. terms. Yeah, yeah, that's And they right. agree to give you a return on that mm. for based on the length of time that you're giving them the money. Yeah. So if you give them, give you lend the government $1000 for 5 years, they go we'll give you 2% on that $1000. Yeah, Is yeah. That yeah, that's, that's that's about right. Yeah, and typically yeah, and the longer that you're lending the government the money, the more they're going to pay you. And so mm. as the duration goes out, so as you got as more time, the, the yield goes up typically because mm. the longer you're going to lend the money, the more return you want. And so if you track it out, look, you look at the yield curve, just, just match it, just looks at the, the return versus on the y-axis versus the duration on the x-axis. So if you look one year, it's paying 2%, three years, it's paying 5%, seven years, it's paying you know, nine percent, whatever mm. it is, and so you have this sort of typically this upward sloping line when you when you map that mm. out. When the yield curve inverts, which is what happened, the longer duration bonds are paying less than the shorter duration bonds. The yields are lower, and so that's what happened last on Wednesday last week. The three-year bond U.S. Treasury bond yield was paying two point five percent, but the ten-year was paying two point four percent. So that would have been. I imagine there would have was been some economists all a flutter at that when that when that happened. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a big story because it's sort of saying it's it's cheaper to borrow money for a long time than it is for a short time. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the cause of that? Is that is that linked to inflation and it linked mm. to all these kind of these temporary things that we people keep saying are temporary mm. is that is that the kind of the proof in the pudding that they're temporary because the the long term yield is less than the short term kind of none of those things actually Excellent. yeah good. good stab good good stab <laughs> but uh, seem, no. seem pretty related yeah i mean it is in, it is in a sense but the transmission mechanism is through interest rates and so it says more right. about what markets are expecting for interest rates. But that does it mean that they're going to expect that the interest rates are going to go down in the medium term? Yes. So short term interest rates are going to rise. Yep. Medium term, but we don't expect that they're going to stay up there very long. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what that's saying. So what? So it, bam, bam. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> yeah. So you just keep guessing, Thomas, <laughs> and eventually. <laughs> Someone says, hey, you're right on the money with that. <laughs> you didn't hear the other 16 guesses that we edited out in post. 
yeah. yeah. No, finally we got there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so what it's saying is in the US they're expecting the Fed to hike rates quickly in the, in the near term and that seems mm. to be locked in. They're definitely talking about that. But then it seems that markets expect that the Fed's going to break something in that process um, and they're going to have to cut rates fairly soon afterwards, sort of over the medium to long-term horizon. Have they got a history of stuffing it up? Is that, is that what they're saying? Uh, I, I think we live in such a financialized, debt-leveraged economy these days that any changes to the monetary framework have big impacts and unpredictable impacts. And yeah, stuff can break. Right. Because I read something today saying they're going to they're gonna have 10 rate rises in the next year of like 0.25%. In America, is that what they're saying? Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, that could be right. We're, 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 we're going to have 11 apparently. Nice. Yeah. yeah, so currently, yeah, current, current market pricing for say that the RBA is going to, yes, yeah, 11. Can we just have like a, a few, like a, just a couple and make them bigger? <laughs> like why do we have to have 11 rate rises of 0.25%? Couldn't we just uh, go, well, like let's just have one of, like let's just have a couple, make them three percent each <laughs> yeah no it's just sort of convention that you sort of freak everyone out yeah you adjust things slowly and kind of see how it, how, <laughs> how how the economy reacts 25 basis points is the convention every now and again you might get a 50 but you never right. like and then maybe in a massive crisis you might get a 75 but yeah never mm. never more than that yeah but you look okay. at the look at the outlook for for the aussie rates we're looking at 11 straight rate hikes beginning in june this year taking us all the way through to july next year that's what mm. that's what the money markets are pricing in just seems what ri- it feels ridiculous like? it feels like nah it's not gonna nah. happen <laughs> <laughs> you guys are crazy yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. i love phil yeah, so yeah, so that that seems a bit crazy. So when the yield curve inverted, everyone's like, right, you only get two false flags in sixty five years. We're getting we're mm. going to get a recession in America. That's what it's saying. But yep. the uh, the counter argument to that is it's like, well, the Fed, the central banks have been messing with the money markets in a pretty massive way. They've been printing money. They've been they had yield curve control. So not only are they you know, dropping the overnight cash rate, which is the, the the headline rate where you're talking about that 25 basis points, but they're also squashing the yield across the across the curve. So it's like trying to bring bring interest rates down everywhere. So they've kind of, mm. they've been messing with the yield curve itself actively. People are saying, well, it's, it's not not that surprising. You're getting these kind of wacky results because, or even like pricing in 11 rate height, straight rate heights. That's what money markets are pricing in. There's no economist in the country that thinks that's realistic, but that's what mm. the money markets are doing. And you're saying that's just what happens when you, when central banks mess with the money markets the way they have been is you just get these weird results and that sort of show up and then fade away. And Man. so the yield curve inverted, but then it sort of got, got back to its regular shape not long after that. <laughs> <laughs> like within the, within the day, man. This yield curve, like people, you can't control the yield curve. It's not a it's not a beast that can be tamed. <laughs> this yield curve, no. you start trying to mess with the yield curve, and you you might as well mess with the space time continuum. It's it's much like oh, that. Yeah, mm, it reminds me of Ghostbusters when they're talking about crossing the streams. Like you just it's, it's things that things that we don't understand, Thomas. You mm. and I. No. <laughs> 
all right. Look, why don't we uh, why don't we take there and, and let the yield curve flatten out a bit? Uh, grab a quick word from this week's sponsor and be back with more comedian versus economist right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. You're on Comedian versus Economist. You can, of course, send us an email, cve at equitymates.com on the website, equitymates.com forward slash cve or get us on Facebook and Instagram at cve podcast. Thomas, a lot of uh, stuff in the news this week about the Solomon Islands and some sort of deal with China. Can you mm. tell me what's going on there? No, not really, but I can tell you what, yeah. what this, what's been happening in the news as much as we know. Yeah. So... Yeah, last week the Solomon Islands, there was a draft agreement with China that's now been inked apparently on Thursday. Um, mm. It's a wide-ranging security pact, yeah, the bilater- bilateral security cooperation framework, mm. yeah, between Solomon Islands and China. Um, and people read... read they're the- not joining armies, are they? I hope they're not because that would be a scary force. Like China has 2.185 million active personnel Mm. 1.17 million reserve personnel Hmm. like there's a combined task force in the solomon islands made up of 160 people (laughs) um, of which 115 of them are are from the australian defense force so that's (laughs) going to cause all sorts of problems if we've i don't want to take on that army especially with those insiders from australia yeah a bit awkward for the aussies just like didn't, (laughs) didn't know i'd end up on this side of the fence (laughs) <laughs> you've been sold you've been sold to china we're now exporting we're, yeah, we're exporting yeah. exporting soldiers <laughs> via the solomon islands right mm. so what does it mean this, this well, security deal yeah so the wording was pretty vague but there was the vagueness that made pre- people pretty worried so one of the clauses mm. said china may according to its own needs and with the consent of the solomon islands make ship visits to carry out logistical replenishment in and have stopover and transitions in the solomon islands and everyone's like, well, that's a Navy base. No, it's not. It's well, not a Navy but They're just going to stop in. <laughs> just check check in on how things are going. Yeah. Help out. Yeah. Look, we're just going to send some troops there to help out. Well, Let the massive it. warships dock there. <laughs> every yeah. now and then, just not all the time, just every now and then it's going to fill up, replenish supplies and mount an attack on the west. It's yeah. nothing <laughs> to be worried about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and another provision to allow Chinese army and police to deploy in the Solomon Islands to help maintain order. Mm. Yeah, and to protect the the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in the Solomon Islands. 
yeah, it's been greeted in the West with a lot of alarm. So, or particularly in the in the Pacific Islands, like PNG and uh, mm. those those places are looking at going like, oh, that's you know, you're really changing the the geopolitical order of things because everyone else is aligned with the West, with Australia and the US, and then the Solomon Islands is just jump jump ship and, and aligned with China. Mm. Like in the Defence Institutes in Australia, they're saying this is really scary. Like it's 1,500 kilometres from the Solomon Islands to Australia, so it's right on our doorstep in the in a sort of in the, in the geopolitical sense. Um, mm. Peter Jennings, the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, says this presents a threat to the east coast of Australia like we have not seen since the Second World War. All you have to do. Mm. It, is apply the same type of purposeful building of capability that we've seen on the in the 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 Chinese do in the South China Sea to understand where it could potentially go. Yeah, so like maybe one base isn't that big a deal, but it says it's it sets a pretty dangerous precedent and is something that that Australia should be should be pretty nervous about. Yeah, I mean, if only there was some kind of warning signs for this. Like, mm. I don't know, the number eight best thing to do on the Solomon Islands is to visit the World War Two battlegrounds. <laughs> And see downed planes and and other things from World War Two. It's like it's almost like we've been here before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, mm. well, the Pacific was a sort of the key battleground, particularly with with Japan back mm. in World War Two. Yeah, it was interesting. The the president is it the president? Mm. Prime, minister? Prime minister, I think. Prime minister. He came out and said he was quoted as saying, "We are friends to all and enemies to none." Mm. I'm not sure that's possible, is it? No, you don't, not you know the old the old enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of logic or whatever it is. Like you mm. have to, you can't be friends to everyone, can you? No, and, and I mean Australia's had our moment with this a couple of years ago. So post COVID, so pre COVID, you know we we were China and China and Australia were best friends. We're our economic futures were closely tied, lots of friendliness, mm. and then after COVID, the US went. You know what? We're actually moving to a, a doctrine of strategic rivalry. We're not seeing ourselves as necessarily that friendly. There's a lot of uh, strategic competition going on and Australia would kind of prefer it if you didn't ship iron ore and everything to China and help them build their <laughs> war, war planes and destroyers. Thanks. It'd be nice if you... Put us in a, that would have put us in a awkward, tough spot. Awkward, awkward position that was, yeah. Again, well, like I imagine we were like trying to take the we want to be friends to everyone line. So well, we want yeah. to be friends with the US and we want to be friends with China. We were. Put us in a very difficult position. Difficult, difficult. And yeah, and we jumped ship and then we said, well, okay, yep, yeah, our future's with America. Like I don't know. I don't know. We, we didn't really have a choice at that point. And then China was upset yeah. with that, obviously. So then that's, that triggered mm. all the sort of economic coercion we've seen, the sort of the tariffs and ban on exports and things like that. And, mm. and now here we are. And now we're like shaping up as like we're getting a bit sort of argy-bargy in mm. the Pacific, which is it's shifted very quickly, that sort of mm. relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, one minute we're selling them selling them iron ore to build their ships. The next minute they're putting their ships on our doorstep, just going, we're just going to leave these here for a minute. Mm. Just look over there. Yeah. Uh, right. All right. Yeah, so it is looking a bit grim, but there was in the federal budget that did include $65 million to build a new high commission in the Solomon Islands in Honiara. <laughs> so I think that should fix it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the Pacific Islands... Get Island some bureaucrats <laughs> in there. That'll sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Thomas, so this next break was going to be about the end of globalization. Didn't we just talk about that with the China situation, the Solomon Islands, or is this something different? Uh, it's, it's connected. It's, it's much the same thing. So this, this sort of came from, from BlackRock's Larry Fink. Larry Fink's, this, I think, CEO of BlackRock, BlackRock's mm. biggest asset manager in the world, US $10 trillion under management. So just, oh. yeah, massive. It's just a stupid amount of money. It's insane. <laughs> So he's written it's his... Not if you, it's not if you're Larry Fink. No. <laughs> it's a good amount of money. Good, yeah. Mm. yeah. So anyway, he's written his annual chairman's letter to shareholders and, and part of it is saying the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalisation we have experienced over the last three decades. Companies mm. and governments will be looking more broadly at their dependencies on other nations. This may lead to companies to onshore or nearshore more of their operations, resulting in a faster pullback from some some countries. So brilliant. So then, so we're not going to buy from China anymore. Mm. We'll just buy from the Solomon Islands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think the point is that sort of with the with the process of globalization, our supply chains and and the way we economic activity just dispersed over the globe tended to go where costs were lowest and that was sort of mm. the only rationale deciding where supply chains would operate and set up. It's just about where you could get the cheapest stuff and therefore make the most profits. And that kind of worked in that sort of post-Cold War era where everyone's friends, the US is sort of the unquestioned dominant military and political force. That kind of made, made sense and people made a lot of money doing through that globalisation. But mm. we're now in an era where the US isn't such a hegemon and it doesn't have such a control on everything in the way that it used to or the way that it was seen to, particularly with the rise of China. And so people are looking at their supply chains with a bit more caution. And also COVID obviously exposed how stretched mm. um, our supply chains were and how vulnerable they were to disruption. And now you've got Europe where it's Europe's mass massively dependent on Russia. I mean, the, the economics of the war in Ukraine is really interesting. So with the so the West has come out and sanctioned the crap out of Russia. It's all over. But they haven't touched oil and gas exports. They haven't sanctioned that because Europe is incredibly reliant on Russian gas. At the same time, Russia is incredibly reliant on the money it gets from selling gas to Europe. So it's still supplying the gas. So you have these mm. kind of two blocks in this kind of proxy war but they're still still selling gas to each other. Well, Russia's still selling gas to Europe because they're both mm. really reliant on that. But the Europe is now scrambling to try and create a, you know alternatives to the to Russian oil and gas and try to get more energy security. So there's this new phrase that you're hearing a lot now, which is commodity nationalism, which is countries thinking about where their where their commodities and their resources are coming from, and making sure that those supply chains are really secure, either by developing them themselves or or from close politically aligned trading partners, and that's creating a what Fink's calling a reorientation of supply chains and and trade around with a view to security and making sure things are secure, and yeah, and that and that's a reversal of of a trend that's been playing out, and the natural consequence of that is if you if the lowest cost units is, is not the driving rationale from where you set up your supply chains. That means we're going to have higher cost supply chains, but sort of by definition, um, mm. and that's inherently inflationary. So this process of deglobalization that we're sort of entering into is going to, going to naturally result in higher prices. 
Yeah, okay. So so that means the inflation that we've been talking about maybe isn't temporary if this goes ahead. Like if, mm. if globalisation is kind of winding up and people are moving supply chains closer and they're paying more for them, then all this inflationary pressure that we've seen lately isn't necessarily temporary. That transitory. Yeah, that could be right. That could be right. I mean, you remember globalisation was a process that took 20 to 30 years to play out to sort of mm. reach its high watermark around COVID, around 2020, and that sort of will probably be seen as the high watermark of globalisation. But it took a long time mm. to get there to sort of set up all the trade networks and the agreements and for companies to understand the rule of law in different countries. So it was a, it was mm. a slow process to evolve and it will probably be a slow process to de-evolve. Um, yeah, so we could potentially be looking at sort of supply pressures five, ten years down the track potentially. Right. I did read, like, because he wrote a, it was in his, his annual letter, wasn't it? This mm. Fink from BlackRock. Mm-hmm. But in the letter, he was also talking, like, he was also spruiking crypto and apologizing for losses sustained throughout the year. So, like, if I've learned anything through my crypto trading, it's if, if someone's spruiking some form of crypto and apologizing for losses at the same time, <laughs> that's a red flag. You gotta. <laughs> I don't care if you got thirty trillion under management. <laughs> if, if your annual letter involves the words crypto and I'm sorry about the losses, then that's that's bad news. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Don't worry about the fud. That's what he's saying. <laughs> BlackRock's going to the moon. Going to the moon. Um, well, their share price yeah. is down twenty percent this year or something. I think they've been taking a yeah. taking a battering. I don't know why. Yep. Uh, yeah, crypto, crypto, crypto's down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> few bad bets. <laughs> the other part of this story, which is interesting for Australia, is is commodity nationalis- nationalism is actually very good for Australia because we're commodity rich. Mm. We, you're seeing this with our political allies are trying to sort of shore up the connections with Australian resources. So the announcement last week was that the US Commerce Secretary has committed to help Australian miners access American export financing arms. So America has these sort of government-backed financing schemes for projects that it thinks are valuable and they're now Mm. adding crucial minerals to that list. So they updated the list of crucial minerals. It's like nickel and zinc and things that go into energy and defence and electronics and all that sort of stuff. They're, mm. they're now updated as crucial because they're realising all the semiconductor shortages and all of that. So they want to secure that. And so now saying, yep, yeah, the American government is going to fund Aussie, Aussie miners to extract these critical minerals. It's interesting because they're um, like, you know, we're talking lithium and all these kinds of mm. these minerals that are used in making green energy. Mm. You mentioned they're also used in defence. Like as far as I understand, they're also used in like making weapons. So I'm just I'm thinking of all the people that bought like ethical ETFs and stuff, <laughs> thinking they're like buying into the ESG movement, only to realise that their investments being used f- to make some missiles. <laughs> that's that's pretty contradictory. Yeah. I don't quote me on that. I don't know if that's a thing, but it sounds yeah. like it, it's just an interesting crossover mm. that the same minerals that are used for clean energy are also used heavily in making mm. weapons. Yeah, weapons with a smaller carbon footprint, though. So <laughs> that's a win. Carbon neutral bombs. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
nice. Thank you, Thomas, once again. Don't forget, check out all the other great podcasts from Equity Mates Media. Get started investing, Equity Mates Investing Podcast. You're in good company. Talk money to me, Crypto Curious, and launching very soon, The Dive, uh, which is now available wherever you get your podcasts. You can uh, log in, subscribe, sign up, uh, and get ready for episode one, which will be dropping very, very soon. Thank you for tuning into Comedian versus Economist. We really appreciate it. If this is your first time, if you, you heard us on the Chaser Report podcast and thought you'd come and check us out, then welcome. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in a bit of a primer in economics because it can be uh, pretty hard going, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and check out season one of Comedian versus Economist where we really broke down some of the basics of economics and the economy and what, what makes it all tick. So... Uh, welcome aboard. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.